On today's episode, we have a couple of claymation Christmas classics, starting with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer from 1964, followed by Santa Claus is Coming to Town from 1970. everyone welcome to brandon at random reviews i am your host brandon griffiths thank you for stopping by i do appreciate it today on the show like i said some claymation classics for our christmas time of the year you know i'm very excited about it so you know i did want to talk a little bit about just christmas in general for me some topics around the christmas season that come up that i just really wanted to clear the air on so Let's start with eggnog. So I can see where most people would probably, you know, I could see definitely not liking eggnog. And I'm just kind of one of the few people I know that is very middle of the road. Like, I don't love eggnog and I don't hate eggnog. And I mean, it's just, it's very bizarre to me. I mean, it basically just tastes like liquefied sugar cookies to me. But, you know, I mean, that's not all bad. And I find it funny that, you know, people are very polarized about it, and it's just like, I I don't know, you know, I mean, I don't doubt that there's a lot of good reason for it. You know, for desserts this time of year, I love my, so my grandma, uh, who passed away a few years back, is she had a recipe for these really good chocolate chip cookies that are rolled in powdered sugar, and if you get them right, they are just phenomenal, and I could eat, like, 12 dozen of the fucking things. Yeah, that's right, 12 dozen, and I just, I adore them, you know, I enjoy most of the types of pies that you can have at Christmas and things like that. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff. There's very little in the way of dessert that I'm not a fan of, but for the regular food, you know, I mean, I could go all over the board. I mean, I struggle because, like, for Thanksgiving, I don't really care for turkey so much. Like, I don't hate it. It's just, it's a very flavorless meat, you know? I mean, you've got to drench it in fucking gravy to get it to taste like anything. And it's like, why are we eating this? Why is this, you know, I mean, I get I get that it's, you know, it's a big fucking bird, so you can feed a lot of people with it, and that's beneficial. So, you know, you can't really complain about that, but... It's also not ideal, you know, like, the fact that the the taste is so mediocre, in my opinion. On Christmas Day, you know, if you ever make it known that you might be alone on Christmas Day, chances are pretty good your loved ones will, like, insist that you not be alone on Christmas Day. And to me, that's just no big thing. I don't give a shit if I have to be alone on Christmas Day. I am alone most of the time outside is outside of the holidays and family get-togethers there's nothing wrong with me spending all that time alone why can't I spend the day alone when you know it's Christmas day I mean you can go on Christmas day and you can obviously see movies in theaters and things like that and you know that's something to do but I mean to me I don't really like to go to theaters on Christmas day even though it's kind of fun because it's like one of the few things you can do 
I really don't like to support people having to work on Christmas Day for that reason. You know what I mean? It doesn't really seem right to me, but you know that it, I don't think that's ever going to change. It's been that way forever. You know, I think the only time they probably weren't open was like 2020 during the pandemic. But other than that, I don't know. I mean, that is that is the one thing. So mostly everything is closed. You know, there's like one or two restaurants or whatever. You know, a lot of Chinese places are open. And, you know, I mean, I think maybe Denny's is open, but it's just it's not great. I mean, like there, it, that's the worst part about that day is if you don't have anything specific to do, unless you've lined something up for yourself at your house, then you're kind of fucked for, you know, getting out and doing anything because everything is shut down. So I actually, this year pitched the idea, you know, you have Black Friday, you have Cyber Monday and, you know, I mean, it's all very cool to get some deals and things like that, but I pitched the idea to my family, my immediate family, that we not do gifts this year. You know, not do presents at all, just have a Christmas. You know, we're all adults. We're all at least in our mid-30s at the youngest. And I'm like, honestly, we don't need to keep fucking doing this. I would much rather buy what I want and get it right fucking now. And the hardest thing about it is, is it's so tough to tell what to get everybody. They have to basically tell you what to get them. And ordinarily, they would normally just go and buy it themselves when they actually wanted it. But then they get to wait until the end of December to fucking get that gift. So, I mean, that that's not ideal. Honestly, yeah, that's my brief rundown. I figure I wanted to kick off the Christmas season on that note just to kind of talk a little bit about the different things for Christmas and, you know, just kind of be broad about it, but, you know, so obviously we've got a couple of movies. These are claymation stop-motion movies that were made in the 60s and 70s, and they were produced by a duo named Rankin Bass, and, you know, they're they're pretty solid. They hold up pretty well. They're still entertaining for me when I watch them, so We'll start off with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, released on December 6th, 1964, directed by Larry Romer, written by Romeo Muller, produced by Arthur Rankin Jr. So for the score, we have composer Johnny Marks, but honestly, Johnny Marks is the guy that originally wrote the song Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I mean, he I don't buy that he was actually the chief music maker in this movie, but he's the only one that's credited on IMDb and Wikipedia, and I just, I don't know who to credit for having actually written the other songs, but I guess if they wanted to credit Johnny Marks, they just did, so for the voice cast, we have Burl Ives, who plays Sam the Snowman, and he's our narrator for the film, and he was in East of Eden, which has James Dean in it, and it is just not a great movie. I mean, J- James Dean was only in three movies, and only, from what I've seen, only one of those three movies was actually worth a shit, and it was Rebel Without a Cause. And that one even wasn't, like, spectacular to me. And then, you know, he was in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which has, I think it's Paul Newman and Elizabeth Taylor. And, you know, that's that's uh, not a good movie either. That's fucking terrible. I don't like it at all. I thought it was useless. I mean, I thought it was just like, you're watching, it'd be like 
watching family. Like it, it feels real. You know what I mean? It feels like something that's really happening. It's genuine and everything. It's just, it's not something that's worth making a movie out of, in my opinion. So then we have Larry Mann, who plays Yukon Cornelius, the greatest prospector in the North. Billy Mae Richards, who spells it B-I-L-L-I-E. She's a woman. And she was credited as Billy B-I-L-L-Y Richards to conceal the fact that she was a woman because they didn't want people to know, you know, she voices Rudolph and they didn't want people to know that Rudolph was voiced by a woman. So then you have Paul Souls, who plays Hermie, Stan Francis, who plays Santa Claus, Janice Orenstein, who plays Clarice, and, you know, I mean, there's... This is a pretty solid cast. It's pretty wild to me. You know, like, basically, Burl Ives is American, as far as I know, and then the rest of these people are Canadian voice actors, so that's pretty wild. You never really hear about them in anything else, but I just thought it was interesting. So, for a plot synopsis, we have... A young reindeer is mocked for his non-conforming light-up nose until he grows up and has it exploited in the name of mass materialism. All right, let's dive right into this fucking plot. So, at the beginning, you know, we get this little collection of doom and gloom newspaper headlines juxtaposed against a blizzard. Sam the Snowman starts telling us who he is and where he is, which is the North Pole, you know, I can't watch this. He has this moment where he's telling us where Santa and Mrs. Claus live, and he says that it's the last castle on the left, and he says, as a matter of fact, it's the only castle on the left, and he, like, lets out this little hearty chuckle, and I always go, ha, 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 Like, I just really let out an obnoxious, sarcastic laugh. It's too much. So anyway, Mrs. Claus is trying to fatten Santa up in time for Christmas, and I gotta be honest, Santa's weight is probably the least of his problems, as we find out later. A more major concern with him is just him being a giant fucking asshole. And just so we're clear, Sam the Snowman, he has the right to break the fourth wall as the narrator, but the whole acting like someone is actually saying something to him is a bit much. You know, we don't hear anybody's voices talking back to him, but he's like, what, Rudolph? You never heard the story of Rudolph? And it's like, no, just keep fucking going. So Sam breaks into the title song, and then it goes instrumental only as we get the opening credits with a medley of the different songs to be featured in the film. Sam tells of when Rudolph was born to his father Donner and his mother Mrs. Donner, because apparently the writers of this movie were completely out of name ideas and couldn't just call her Linda or some shit. So the two new parents quickly realize that Rudolph has a shiny red nose that lights up and beeps and whistles and all sorts of weird shit. The noises are not in the original Rudolph song, but they add tension to the story later, so I guess it's okay. So Santa shows up to greet the newborn and notices Rudolph's nonconformity as well. Donner assures Santa that Rudolph will grow out of it, but to be clear, Donner is not a fucking doctor, and as far as I know, Rudolph's would be the first illuminating nose case on record. So Santa suggests that if Rudolph doesn't grow out of the nose, that will mean that Rudolph might not actually be able to be on his team someday, because the North Pole is all about inclusion, guys. And honestly, if I were Rudolph in this situation, 
I'd be like, yeah, fuck you, buddy. You know what? I'll remember this interaction when the time comes. So Santa breaks out into the jingle, jingle, jingle song. The songs in this movie are actually pretty fucking solid. I can't lie. So Donner decides that they'll hide Rudolph's nose under some clay or mud or whatever. And he just says that he'll get used to it. And Rudolph says, it's not very comfortable. And it's like, Yeah, I bet it's fucking not, Rudolph. You've got mud on your nose. So Donner says that there are things that are more important than comfort, like self-respect, and Donner just really seems like he'd be a great guy to hang out with. You know, a lot of fun. So Donner shows Rudolph how to be a reindeer, especially how to avoid the abominable snow monster, and it seems realistically like all of the folks in Christmastown should just, you know overwhelm the abominable with sheer numbers and kill him and be done with it but they're they're just not doing that so anyway we get a glimpse of elf life and toy making and we meet this one elf hermy and we know he's important because he has real looking eyes like he you can see the white of his eyes with black circles in the middle but all of the other elves for the most part just have like single black dots for eyes so you know that's just a neat little thing. So Hermie is just not happy in his work. He doesn't really like to make toys at all. So Hermie's boss, the head elf, chastises Hermie and the other elves chime in and Hermie says that he'd rather be a dentist. So Hermie is forced to work through break or risk being fired because, you know, they're not unionized at the North Pole yet, I guess. And the other elves have completely cast Hermie out because of his feelings on his career And I will say that there is a lot of gay allegory in Hermes' story. I mean, if he's a gay elf, he's a gay elf, you know? I mean, that's not a big deal. Just be true to who you are, you know? But I mean, I haven't really sensed a real culture of acceptance at the North Pole, so it might kind of be a big deal that he's gay. So Donner is continuing to hide Rudolph's nose as he gears up to play in the reindeer games. Rudolph meets another fawn named Fireball, and they become fast friends, and Fireball explains that the games are a great place to score some chicks, and the elves have what they call elf practice, which is basically just the head elf doing a fake voice and having them sing a song for the clauses, basically. I mean, the elf talks like, really mean and angry all the time, you know? And then all of a sudden, it's like Santa's around. He's like, oh, well, hello, Santa. How are you doing today? You know, it's like, okay, yeah, that's one way to go. So Hermie is confronted for missing elf practice by the head elf guy because apparently Hermie contributes positively to the singing, at least. So that's good. You know, Hermie's been fixing doll teeth while elf practice was happening. And the head elf just shoots him down and tells him that he'll never fit in, you know, because he really thought, well, you know, if I can integrate these two things of, like, making toys and being a dentist, that that would be my ticket, you know? So Hermie decides, you know, after taking as much as he can stand, he goes AWOL and he leaves his elving duties by escaping out of a window in the workshop. And then back at the reindeer games, Fireball points out that one of the does seems to like Rudolph, and he is just so fucking geeked about it. So Coach Comet organizes some flying lessons, and he has an awesome voice, by the way. And he's like, right, right, right. We won't be letting Rudolph play in any reindeer games. Right, right. 
you know, it's, it's just, it's ridiculous. So everyone fights to try the first flight, and, you know, the first fawn really fucking sucks at it, but it was a good effort. And Fireball coaxes Rudolph to go meet the doe who was checking him out while he awaits his turn. Clarice is her name, and bless her heart, she is just trying to talk to Rudolph, but this fucking dope just keeps giving these very brief responses. Like, she'll ask Rudolph something, and he'll just say, yup, and it's like, no follow-up question, no nothing, and it's like, my god, dude, you gotta do more than that. So, that's pretty much my experience with online dating but I would be in Clarice's shoes, you know, that would, that's the experience I have. They introduce themselves to each other, and Rudolph asks Clarice if she wants to walk home with him, and she says yes, and tells him that she thinks he's cute, and Rudolph is immediately summoned by Comet to come take his turn in the flying lessons, and Rudolph is so fucking over the moon about Clarice, he just says, I'm cute, I'm cute, over and over, you know, because he's got the fake nose on, so that's how he's talking. So Rudolph is basically just so horny that it allows him to fly all over the place like a champ, you know? It's pretty fucking amazing. And then when he lands and he begins telling Fireball about what happened, they knock antlers together, you know, just playing around, and Rudolph's fake nose falls off. So Fireball is freaked out at the sight of the red nose, and so is Comet and the rest of the reindeer as they begin calling Rudolph names. And there are very few adults in this movie. And I mean, there are characters of an adult age, but they're mostly pieces of shit. They're not very adult acting at all. So Santa tells Donner that he ought to be ashamed of himself, even though Donner's behavior was at least partially motivated by Santa, because Santa is the one who told Donner that if Rudolph didn't grow out of the nose, that he'd never be on the reindeer team. So, you know, fuck Santa Claus in this fucking movie, honestly. Comet tells Rudolph that he won't be playing in any more reindeer games, and... I just gotta say, what a great guy. You know, class act, honestly. So as Rudolph walks away, Clarice stops him to comfort him, and she tells him she likes his real nose better than the fake one. And at that point, I really don't think that Rudolph would be able to tell the difference between romantic attraction and being overjoyed that someone is just being decent to him, you know? So Clarice sings a little song, which is decent, but it's probably the weakest of the film. And Clarice's father shows up and breaks the two of them up and warns that he doesn't want Clarice to be seen with a red-nosed reindeer. So Rudolph's super fucking bummed out, obviously, and he sits on a snowbank where Hermie pops up, and they become friends over their mutual decision to become independent. So they decide to be independent together, and they keep using that word. I do not think it means what they think it means. So they agree to accept each other for who they are, and the gay allegories are as strong as ever. The two misfits go off on their own, and they have to dodge the abominable snow monster out in the wild. They meet Yukon Cornelius, who is a prospector that is looking for silver and gold, we're to understand. Sam the Snowman performs this nice silver and gold song that's just kind of a soothing little melody. And Yukon offers to give Rudolph and Hermie a ride on his dog sled. And I've got to applaud Yukon since he is completely unfazed by these two who are completely different. They have totally different lifestyles and appearances from him. And he doesn't even really acknowledge it at all. 
So Yukon struggles a great deal with getting his dogs going on the dog sled. And then we find out that Yukon calls the abominable snow monster a bumble. And that's what I'll be calling the abominable snow monster for the remainder of this movie. I would love to be able to not say abominable snow monster over and over again. So bumble it is. Rudolph is developing a guilt complex as he realizes that his nose seems to be the cause of their run-ins with the Bumble, and I can't help but wonder if maybe putting a little bit of mud on his nose would resolve that issue, but that's neither here nor there. They run from the Bumble, and they come to a body of water where Yukon chips off a chunk of ice for them to use as a raft, and we find out one of many Bumble facts from Yukon, which is that Bumbles sink, so the Bumble cannot pursue them across the water. So Yukon keeps throwing his pickaxe up in the air, and when it lands, he picks it up and he licks it, and I guess he's tasting it for whether there's silver or gold on it. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I have absolutely no idea what silver or gold tastes like. So back with the Donner party. <laughs> so I, I don't know how much you know about history, but there was a famous band of cannibals from the Old West named the Donner party, and they ate each other. So, you know, that's just a fun little tidbit, and I decided to call the Donners the Donner Party. So they feel pretty bad, and they realize that they should go and look for Rudolph. Donner says that it's man's work and that Mrs. Donner should stay home while he looks because, yeah, I mean, going around and looking for someone is exclusive to one gender only, you ass face. So shortly after Donner leaves, Clarice comes and her and Mrs. Donner go out looking for Rudolph as well. Yukon and the boys are in a dense fog and Yukon says, Fog is thick as peanut butter. And Hermie's like, you mean pea soup. And he says, you eat what you like and I'll eat what I like. And it's like, that's fucking great, Yukon. I hope that voice is okay. I don't. I hope it's not terrible. I just, I'm trying my best here. So... Hermie seems like he's just not a fan of Yukon. Like, there's this moment where they crash into land on this ice raft, and after they've already hit, Yukon yells out, Land ho! And Hermie is just so annoyed, he's just like, no kidding. And that's it. You know, like, he just fucking shuts him down. So, anyway, Rudolph, Hermie, and Yukon run into a talking toy, and he's a jack-in-the-box, and he's also the sentry of the... Island of Misfit Toys. He's a misfit because his name is actually Charlie. So we meet a handful of other toys, and I'm sorry if you already got a preview of this, but among the misfit toys are a polka-dotted or spotted elephant, and that's honestly just a cool fucking design idea by the stuffed animal manufacturer. Like, that's not a problem at all. Then we have the cowboy that rides the fucking ostrich. Are you shitting me? That is so much fucking cooler than any cowboy riding a horse. So then there's the bird that can't fly and only swims. And honestly, if you're a child, you still have to pretend that any other bird toy is flying. So why not just pretend that bird can fly? Plus it's waterproof and you can take it swimming presumably. So that's solid. There's a train with square wheels on his caboose, and honestly, you know, that just seems like a hardware upgrade. I'm not really sure why they're even manufacturing square wheels, but, you know, just swap them out for round ones and you should be good. Then there's a water pistol that shoots jelly, and that legitimately just means that 
it's a more powerful water pistol. I mean, it can shoot that thick-ass jelly out. Are you shitting me? That's so much better. And the Charlie in the box that is just a jack-in-the-box named Charlie, but there's nothing inherently wrong with its functionality as a toy. So it's like either just go by Jack or, you know, keep your name Charlie and make that your cool, unique thing that makes you stand out. Then there's this doll that is suffering from depression and low self-esteem. And, you know, I hate to break it to you, honey, but we all suffer from depression and low self-esteem. And I think that just makes us all misfits. I mean, we all can say that we have things wrong with us, but as long as we have the right outlook, we can survive and thrive in these times. But there is that one, there's there's a boat that they come across that won't stay afloat. And I mean... If that can't be repaired or fixed in some way, then I guess they'll probably just take it out back and shoot it. So anyway, they're singing their little Island of Misfit Toys song, and the Jelly Pistol squirts jelly on Hermes' face, and Rudolph starts licking it off, and it's like, "Mm mm-hmm, okay. Alright, so the trio decides that maybe since they're also misfits, that they'll go see King Moonracer, to see if they can stay there. And King Moonracer is basically the lord of the Island of Misfit Toys. So King Moonracer explains that the island is only for toys, but the boys can stay the night in exchange for them passing the word along about the island to Santa. So King Moonracer says a toy can never truly be happy until it is loved by a child. And it's important to note that King Moonracer is not a toy, but he lives on this island, and I guess it's okay for him because he's the king? I don't know. So that night, Rudolph argues with Yukon and Hermie that he must go off alone because, you know, he's putting them all in danger, which is 100% true. It's, it's absolutely right. But they tell him no and that they're in this together, you know, solidarity, bro, blah, blah, blah. But Rudolph knows that he must go to prevent more run-ins with the Bumble, so he sneaks out in the night like some unruly high schooler, and Rudolph grows up fast, which makes him realize that he can't run from his troubles somehow. I don't really understand how he has this revelation, and just growing up makes him realize that, but okay. And then when he comes back, you know, the reindeer are still dicks to him about his nose and he can't find his parents and Santa explains that they all went off to find him. And we don't really have a good sense of like the passage of time in this movie. We don't know how many days it's been. So it's like it would appear that the Donners and Clarice went off looking for Rudolph quite a while ago, but we don't know. We don't know how long it was. So So anyway, Santa is worried about not being able to get his sleigh off the ground without Donner because Santa only cares about those who are useful to him in some way. Like, he's not concerned in the least that Donner might be in some kind of danger or hurt or something. It's not a concern of his, it's just his reindeer team, you know, he's got to be able to fly his sleigh. So as Rudolph goes to find everyone, a bad blizzard hits, and, you know, you see these little houses getting torn apart and stuff, but the rest of the movie, you don't really see much evidence of a real blizzard going on. I'm assuming it would have been too hard to animate, but, you know, it's basically just not as bad in these other scenes following this. So Rudolph finds his folks and Clarice in the Bumble's cave, and the Bumble gets the best of Rudolph, and it's left to Yukon and Hermie to save them. So... They devise a plan, and it's a fucking golden plan, honestly. So here's the deal. 
One thing you need to know is that Bumbles apparently are known to prefer pork to venison, all right? That's critical. So the idea is that Hermie will be out oinking out of sight outside of the cave to lure the Bumble out, and then Yukon will pry loose a boulder when the Bumble comes out to investigate the oinks and hit the Bumble in the head with the boulder and knock it out. All right, so this boulder is above the cave, the opening of the cave, and that's where this is all going to happen. It's a brilliant plan, and it works hook, line, and sinker. You know, the bumble is KO'd, and the deer are saved. So the bumble wakes up, and Hermie has actually removed all of his teeth, which is pretty fucking fast work, if you ask me. So Yukon antagonizes the Bumble a little bit and coerces him into falling off of a cliff, but Yukon falls with him and is presumed dead. And then, I mean, we look around at the bottom of the cliff and we see absolutely nothing. We don't see, like, bodies laying on the ground way down there. We don't see anything. So you really don't know what to think. So the group returns to Christmas Town and... Everyone makes amends with each other, and Santa promises to find homes for the misfit toys. And Donner says that he's sorry to Rudolph for the way he acted, which, yeah, you're going to need a few years of therapy to get through all of these feelings. One little sorry is not going to do it, Donner. You're an asshole. So we get a knock on the door of the castle, and it's Yukon with the bumble, which means we got our 30 seconds of grief for fucking nothing. And the Bumble's one useful talent that we find is that he can put the star on the Christmas tree. Isn't that nice? Even though it kind of seems like they probably used a ladder for that before, and it probably worked fine, and they didn't have to have a giant monster walking around in a castle. But, yeah, you know, what can you do? Everyone's working hard and getting ready for Christmas, and the weather report comes in, and the blizzard is so bad that Santa decides he has to cancel Christmas. And I don't really understand this. Is this blizzard literally enveloping the entire fucking world? So when Santa goes out to tell everyone the news, Rudolph's nose is shining in his face so fucking hard that he realizes that he could have Rudolph lead the team and they'd be able to see through the storm. So Donner says this line. He says, I knew that nose would be useful someday. I knew it all along. And it's like, yeah, Donner, what if it never proved useful? Would he just never deserve your love, you big sack of shit? So Burl Ives sings Holly Jolly Christmas as everyone makes final preparations, and I absolutely love that song. So at the end of the movie, we see Yukon strike Peppermint near the castle, and he's overjoyed. And, you know, that's kind of the closure to his story. And Santa makes a point of stopping to get the misfit toys just as they've given up hope. And, you know, you see at the end, you know, they're flying in Santa's sleigh, And they're taking these misfit toys and they're giving them umbrellas and letting them glide down to earth with the umbrella as like their parachute. And I'm like, that's not how Santa's delivering toys. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, that's never in any iteration have I ever heard of that. So anyway, that's the end of the story. And for highlights, I'll say the songs are probably the best part. I mean, the ridiculous story is great. I really love it, especially the whole plot to defeat the Bumble. There are a lot of great characters, even if some of them are complete asshole pieces of shit. For criticism, I would say there's probably nothing wrong with this movie other than, you know, give Mrs. Donner a real name And give the head elf a real name. I mean, how hard can it fucking be? I mean, just establish their names 
as you would in any other story. So we've got some production notes and trivia for this one. So when Yukon Cornelius throws his pickaxe into the ground and takes it out and licks it, he's checking neither for gold nor silver. The original concept for the special stated that Yukon was in fact searching for the elusive peppermint mine, which he eventually finds at the end of the movie. That scene has since been restored, starting with the 1998 home video VHS release. So yeah, the VHS that I had when I was a kid did not have the part where he finds the peppermint mine, and there were like a couple of alternate songs and things like that. So Yukon Cornelius's stalwart sled dogs include a Cocker Spaniel, a Poodle, a St. Bernard, a Collie, and a Dachshund. A little joke for you. Um... I went to a zoo once. It was terrible. There was only one animal in the whole place. It was a dog. It was a shit zoo. There you go. That's what you get. That's my fucking joke. So, the title character and original story was created by Robert L. May as an assignment for Montgomery Ward. A song was then developed by Johnny Marks and then popularized through a Gene Autry version. Due to the Roman numeral error in the copyright notice, it reads 1164 rather than 1964. The original elements of this film are considered public domain. The songs and the story the film is based on are independently copied. Copyrighted, though. Aside from Burl Ives, all of the characters are portrayed by Canadian actors. I think I mentioned that. And apparently Burl Ives was actually the only one to get royalties in this film's cast. Like the whole cast, he was the only one. And everyone else was also presumably paid a lot less than him. So, you know, just as a base salary, that's pretty fucking shitty. So, a little bit of info and ratings. A runtime of 52 minutes. Budget and worldwide gross are unknown. It was a TV movie, so it didn't really have uh, any information on that. IMDb rating, 8.1. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 95%. Rotten Tomato Audience score, 76%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. I still watch this one every fucking year, and I never get tired of it. It's so great. Absolutely. Check it out if you've never seen it. So next up, we have Santa Claus is Coming to Town, released on December 13th, 1970, directed by Arthur Rankin Jr. and Jules Bass. And they also made Rudolph, of course, and they made A Year Without Santa Claus, which is not very good. I don't really find it very enjoyable. The writer was Romeo Muller, producer Rankin and Bass, Soundtrack slash score, we have Maury Laws, who did the music, and then Jules Bass, who did the lyrics. For the voice cast, we have Fred Astaire, who plays Special Delivery S.D. Kruger, and he is our narrator in this movie, and he was in a movie called Holiday Inn, which is one of the most fucking racist movies I've ever seen. There are scenes, I mean, multiple scenes, that they literally perform in blackface. And that's a thing in that movie. He was also in The Towering Inferno. And I need to check that one out. I think it has potential to be good. It's supposed to have a lot of people in it. So he was also in Funny Face with, I believe it was Audrey Hepburn. And, I mean... This is not going to shock you at all, but I have a huge crush on Audrey Hepburn, and I think she's great. Unfortunately, I think that movie is a musical, so I can't 100% say I want to see it, but it's, you know, it seems like one that I would check out if I were, you know, in dire straits trying to find a movie. Next up, we have Mickey Rooney, who plays Kris Kringle slash Santa Claus, 
and he was married eight fucking times in his life. He was in a movie called It's a Mad 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 World, and it's supposed to be, I think, a comedy, but I only watched a little bit of it, and it was not for me. It just, I don't know what it was about it. It wasn't great. He was also in Breakfast at Tiffany's, where he played the most racist character I've ever seen. I mean, it's like a caricature of a Chinese person, I think, if I recall correctly. You know, it was, it was at least an Asian person. It had to be, yeah. I mean, so he basically has, like, these fake teeth in. He's made up to look Asian. And he's saying stuff with, you know, like, this Asian voice, you know? And it's like, oh, no, this is fucking terrible. How could you possibly think this was okay? So anyway, then we have Keenan Wynn, who plays Winter Warlock. Then we have Roby Lester, who plays Miss Jessica. Paul Fries, who plays Burgermeister Meisterburger, and apparently many other voices in this movie. And last but not least, Joan Gardner, who plays Tanta Kringle. For the plot synopsis, the origin story of Father Christmas, from toys and stockings to chimneys to his flamboyant red suit. Alright, so let's dive right into this fucking plot. So, the beginning of this fucking movie is so weird. It's like a news bulletin talking about children awaiting the arrival of Santa, and they explain that letters are piling up in the North Pole, and we get this special delivery SD Kruger guy driving around in a little mail truck that has skis on the front and a continuous track propulsion system on the back, like a tank or a skid steer or something. And I'm a little ashamed to admit that I had to actually look up what a continuous track was called because I couldn't remember at all. So SD explains that he not only gets letters about toys, but questions about Santa and just basically wanting to know why he does things the way he does and why he looks the way he does. And I'm just kind of curious. I mean, I don't know if they they spell this out in the actual movie, but why is SD Kruger opening these fucking letters that are addressed to Santa Claus? That's a federal offense. Anyway, it becomes pretty clear that S.D. Kruger is going to tell a nice 45 to 50 minute long story to answer all of these questions, and he starts to sing the title song, and then it goes instrumental, and we get the opening credits with a medley of the different songs we'll hear, much like in Rudolph. I mean, these are different songs from Rudolph, of course, but they, it's the same style of opening credits. So then when the credits end, he begins telling the story of Santa, starting with Santa as a baby. He tells of a small city called Sombertown, and oppression is very big in Sombertown, particularly due to the mayor, Burgermeister Meisterburger. A baby is left on Burgermeister's stoop with a letter asking him to take care of the baby, and I guess whoever the mom was assumed that he was wealthy enough and could afford to take care of a baby, but tragically she assumed that he was not a steaming sack of shit person. The baby has a small medallion that simply says claws on it, and there are no other clues to his identity. So Burgermeister instructs the man who brought the baby in to take it to the orphanage, the man leaves and goes into a winter storm, pulling the baby on a small sleigh, and he loses the baby in all the wind and whatnot, and to protect the baby from the much-feared winter warlock that lives in the woods, a small group of animals comes and takes the baby and brings it to a house in the valley. 
And these fucking elves, surnamed Kringle, who are toy makers, live there. All of these elves have quite possibly the most annoying voices and ways of talking ever. They take the baby to the elf queen, Tanta Kringle, and they decide that they'll take care of and educate him and essentially raise him. So they make all of these toys, but they have no one to give them to because all of the children live on the other side of the mountain. And they just let the toys stack up, basically. And it just kind of seems like they need to innovate their delivery process or relocate so that their supply can meet an undoubtable demand more efficiently. Anyway, Chris declares that someday when he grows up, he will take the toys and bring them to the children. And for those of you that don't understand a lot of storytelling, this is actually what I would call overt foreshadowing. I mean, that's basically going to happen later on, and we fucking know it. So the songs in this one are not as good as the ones in Rudolph, but, you know, they're okay for the most part. They get really repetitive, if I recall correctly. Like, they use the same melody for a couple of songs and just change the lyrics, but it's not really that bad. So also, throughout this movie, you get the voices of kids who the narrator is talking to also speaking. Think, like an early 70s claymation blues clues where S.D. Kruger is Steve. You know, they're just, they're answering his questions and, and talking to him and that's it. So we learn about Chris and how he got along with the animals and we find out that he laughs like he does because of seals all low and hearty. Ho, 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 you know. And Chris gets his red Kringle suit from Tanta, and it's not a bad look, you know. So Chris goes off with a bag of toys for the children of Sombertown and runs into a penguin who is lost. Chris names the penguin Topper because that's a good gender-neutral choice, you know. And there's a brief run-in with the Winter Warlock, but Chris gets away, and the Warlock vows to get him on his way back through. And boy, is that warlock ever mean. I really want an hour and 45 minute origin story on how he became that way, a la the Jim Carrey Grinch movie. Just kidding. The Jim Carrey Grinch is fucking awful. I don't care what you say. So Chris and Topper find Sombertown, where the mayor, in a vulgar display of power, bans all toys as a result of a slip-and-fall accident where he sustained a fracture to his funny bone after tripping on a toy duck. Okay? It seems like a totally reasonable law. Like, if a public official accidentally stabbed himself with a fork, then you're going to want to ban all forks naturally. So, there's a very long song about banning toys that the mayor and his right-hand man sing that sounds just like Tanta Kringles, and so the children are washing their stockings and explaining that they have to hang them by the fire to dry, which is just more foreshadowing. Chris sees them and basically explains to them that they shouldn't be so bummed about chores because he brought them toys, you know? So, I mean, why, why would they want to be pissed off about that? So then this stone-cold fucking fox, Miss Jessica, walks up, and she's the school teacher in the town, and she chastises Chris for giving the children illegal contraband. So basically, to distract her, Chris gives Miss Jessica a china doll, and she loves it and just immediately changes her mind about being on the mayor's side about toys. And it's not really clear ever how Chris just knows exactly what people will like, especially adults, but he always fucking kills it on the gifts, man. 
So the mayor comes and sees the children playing with toys and says to have them arrested, you know. Chris interjects, of course, and tells the mayor that it was him who gave them the toys. And the mayor orders that Chris be arrested, but Chris gives him a yo-yo, and the mayor just loves it, of course. And the mayor's right-hand man has to point out to him that the mayor is actually breaking his own law, and the mayor snaps out of it. But because... The mayor is not exactly a forward thinker. He doesn't really quite learn the error of his ways in this moment. So Chris makes a break for it as the mayor orders him arrested again. And Chris, given what he has learned from the animals, can scale these walls and leap between buildings. And it looks patently absurd watching him do this, but it's it's pretty cool. So Chris ends up in winter warlock territory again. And the warlock is pissed and traps Chris in a tree. I mean, the tree is basically like one of those trees in The Wizard of Oz, and it uses its branch arms to wrap around Chris and hold him. So Chris gives the warlock a toy, and the warlock is so flummoxed by this strange interaction that he sets Chris free before he even really gets to torturing him. The warming of the warlock's heart melts his icy exterior, and the warlock, now preferring to be called Winter, is overjoyed but has unfortunately OD'd on the toys a bit and will be acting like a bitch-ass going forward. So Chris breaks into his One Foot in Front of the Other song about changing your ways, which is easily the catchiest of the movie. I love it. So Winter promises to provide Chris safe passage in exchange for more toys, and he also shows him how to make a crystal ball out of snow. In the ball, we see Miss Jessica looking for Chris in the forest, and she brings Chris letters from the children asking for new toys, since the mayor kind of destroyed their old ones. So Chris explains to her that he'll keep bringing the toys, but only if the children are good. He says that he'll know with the crystal ball, which is probably going above and beyond the concessions granted by the Patriot Act, and it's actually not entirely clear where we're at country-wise in the story, so I guess we're okay. Miss Jessica thanks him and kisses his cheek, and his face goes fucking bright red because I could just see Miss Jessica having that effect on men. So we see Chris checking over his list of kids and deciding who was naughty and who was nice, and then he basically just breaks down at the end and says that they were all pretty good, you know? So the mayor is getting increasingly aggravated that the kids keep getting toys somehow, and he orders all the doors be locked to prevent toys from being brought in. When Chris realizes this, he starts going down chimneys, and after every one of these little moments, I feel compelled to say, so that's how that happened, like the little kids do that are talking to the narrator throughout this. The mayor's oppression of his people escalates when more toys emerge, He orders all the houses to be searched for toys, but Chris has put the toys in the stockings. And are these men the mayor sends out just a bunch of fucking rookies? I mean, you check those stockings, you know? You turn everything in the domicile upside down, man. Come on. The mayor vows to set a trap for Chris, and Miss Jessica overhears. But when she goes to warn him, she asks Winter for help, but he's all out of magic since he went on the straight and narrow. And the men come and arrest Miss Jessica and Winter for aiding and abetting a known criminal. And then they arrest Chris. And Miss Jessica pleads with the mayor to set Chris free. But, like, what was the point of arresting Miss Jessica and not having her serve any time whatsoever? It doesn't make any sense. So then we get the worst song 
ever by Miss Jessica. It's this super late 60s, early 70s garbage, and we see all of this hippie nonsense, like flowers and stuff on screen. Miss Jessica has to try and set everyone free, and Winter tells her about his magic feed corn that makes reindeer fly. Miss Jessica identifies this as an opportunity to have his animal friends help break Chris out. So the reindeer get him out, and the mayor wants to hunt them all down and probably butcher them in front of their loved ones. Since Chris is a wanted man and there are posters out, he grows a beard to conceal his identity, but I mean, he's still wearing a red suit and otherwise matches the physical description of Chris, so I don't know how that's going to work. So he asks Jessica to marry him as he takes the name Claus that he came with as a baby for further cover from the law. And is Miss Jessica's name really just Jessica, and they're calling her Miss Jessica, or is Jessica a last name? I don't know. I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm just perplexed right now. We get another awful song as the movie's wrapping up, and basically Santa decided to move to the North Pole and set up shop there. As he gets older and the workload gets worse, he decides to go only one night a year to give gifts to the children. And we get a bullshit explanation of why Burgermeister Meisterburger fell out of power. And so Chris just doesn't have to be an outlaw anymore. And I honestly could have used a bit of Burgermeister learning the error of his ways and becoming good. But I guess there wasn't really time for all of that. So that's the end of the movie. So my praise for this one, the story, the way it fits a lot of great stuff in to explain the whole Santa Claus lore. The performances are really well done, I think, and some of the songs are pretty good. That leads to my criticism, which is that most of the other songs are either repetitive or complete shit. So for info and ratings, we have a runtime of 51 minutes, budget and worldwide gross, unknown, TV movie, same deal with Rudolph. So IMDb rating 7.7. Rotten Tomato Critics Score, 93%. Rotten Tomato Audience Score, 81%. Personal Rating, 4.5 out of 5 stars. Something about it is just not as enjoyable as Rudolph, but I still really enjoy it, and I'm kind of surprised because I actually checked this one out when I was an adult, or I should say when I was older. I don't know if I'd ever call myself an adult, but... I think I was, you know, I must have been in my mid to late 20s or something when I first saw it. And it was just, I found it really enjoyable, surprisingly so. Because usually, if you don't grow up with this kind of movie, it usually is going to kind of suck, honestly. Like, it's just not as fun. And it's hard to explain that when, you know, you have these movies that you love as a child. And you're taking them and all of a sudden they're, you know... You're trying to show them to other people that didn't see them when they were kids, and they're like, this is fucking terrible. Why the fuck do you like this, you know? And it's like, you can't really explain it, and you know that objectively speaking, it's probably not that good, but you still like it. All right, well, thanks everybody for tuning in today. I absolutely do appreciate it. I hope that you check out my other episodes, and obviously float any suggestions or requests my way, and I'll consider entertaining them. And, you know, obviously just, uh, I guess just have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.